Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. On this podcast, we talk to ambitious women about how they come this far and where they're going next. In this episode, New York Magazine Editor-at-Large Stella Bugby sat down with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend star Rachel Bloom. The American actor and comedy singer-songwriter spoke to us about motherhood, writing a memoir in quarantine, and why she hates when people call her show My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Here's how it went. Hi, it's just us. <laughs> oh, finally. <laughs> I know. I've been waiting for this. Um, so thanks for joining us. Um, you know, regular readers of The Cut will know that you published an excerpt of your book, your recent book on The Cut, about masturbating while pregnant. Um, and I actually want to start there with this interview. <laughs> Great. Just to say that, so it's been a really rough year and, it, you know, we've had COVID and you've had a baby and you've done a book. And um, I, I wanted to ask, which was worse? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's so funny. Um, wow. Because like writing a book seems like an absolute nightmare to me. <laughs> um, it, it's really hard. It's really hard because it's the sheer amount of pages are mind boggling. Um, and when you're writing a you know, a, a script or even a screenplay, sure, it's a lot of pages, but it's dialogue or action. So there's a lot of spaces. You're not filling a page in the same way. With a book, you are filling pages. Um, it's really hard. Um, I would say in order of difficulty, I would say giving birth is harder. Oh, oh, wait, was it covid What's the competition? No, 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 like, no, no. Let's address this. It's co. It's COVID. Uh, having a baby, like giving birth and writing a book. Okay, I will say COVID's the hardest, obviously, just because it's a a pandemic. <laughs> um, I guess I'll say having a baby's harder, followed by writing a book. Um, but writing a book is quite hard. It's like worse. I, I don't know. I know a lot of people who write books, and and in the depths of their despair is you know, profound, worse than the moms I know who've, who've uh, pushed babies out of their bodies. Um, you know, I also had something else I write about in the book. I had a very extreme birth experience uh, because it was at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, my daughter was in the NICU right after she was born. Um, uh, and then, of, of course, my good friend died a week after my daughter was born of COVID. Uh, so... Look, the writing of the book is more, uh, I would say for two years, it was this looming dread because it was like, I need to write that book. Like I'd say to my husband, like, well, I have money coming in from the book. And he's like, have you written the book? I'm like, no, 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 not a word. But don't worry. We'll be okay because I have this book. So there was this looming dread. And then when I finally started it, I started it when I was pregnant, basically. And it was this kind of ever-present thud, uh, like the telltale heart of like, you got to work on the book, you got to finish the book, you got to do the book. Um, as opposed to, I would say, the overt emotional trauma and anguish <laughs> of of my birth experience. And so you're most known for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, obviously, which I've heard a lot of people call my Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but we're going to call it Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is the uh, correct name. You know, name. <laughs> the title, here's the thing. To me, it's the perfect title because what we're doing is a deconstruction of a trope. 
A lot of people say the show A has a bad title. My counter is, okay, you've seen the show. What would you call it? And this is going to be only for listeners who've seen the show. You'd call it Lady in West Covina. You'd call it (laughs) Rebecca. That's already a Hitchcock movie. What would you call the show? Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is the perfect title. Now, as far as people who call it My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, they might do that because there's no preface. Like, I remember I thought the show New Girl for the longest time was The New Girl. I also fucked that up. So I I think if we called it The Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, people wouldn't make that mistake. Uh, But it drives me crazy because My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend implies, of course, that it's from a male point of view, which people default to. I, I have rarely heard people call it the crazy ex-girlfriend. They call it my crazy ex-girlfriend. Yeah, a very important distinction. Um, it's a show about, ultimately about mental illness or, you know, getting through all these like really tough emotional, internal emotional things. And we've just gone through like as a nation, as a world, this crazy moment of all this mental illness that that's like being heaped upon us. And it almost seems like a a prep for this year, like, you know, I've been calling therapists and you can't get a therapist because everybody needs a therapist this year. Do you think it's sort of like made people more sensitive or more sympathetic to discussing issues of mental illness? Yeah, I think it is. And I think we're also getting more comfortable generally as a culture talking about mental health. That that has now become in a great way a, a buzzword. Um, I can't speak for, you know, as as I have always been in somewhat of, of a L.A. slash New York bubble, I can speak for the L.A. New Yorkers and also fans of mine um, who tend to live in liberal enclaves, I think. So I can't speak to, like, how the whole country sees mental health, but I think that it is becoming more acceptable to discuss it. Uh, and And I think especially in the case of parents who've had kids in this pandemic, I think there's a lot of open discussion about your kids' mental health because, okay, I get it if you're too locked up to talk about your well-being and mental health, but I think that people get a lot more selfless and open when it comes to their kids. Yeah. I've seen that with the teenagers. I have teenagers and they, I listen to their Zoom classes all day and the teachers are extremely focused on mental health. Um, I sort of wish that they would play musical videos instead of <laughs> instead of classes sometimes because it's it seems like a therapeutic way of dealing with some of these intense issues like the show does. Yeah, I mean the thing that I have um come around and I was I was talking to a a, a good friend who's going through a a personal tragedy her partner has uh, cancer and it's not looking great and and she and I were kind of she was just like distract me. I want to be distracted. Um, and I think that that's a little bit what this year has changed is a lot of things we hit home in Crazy X were like, feel your feelings, which you absolutely should. You absolutely should feel your feelings. But at a certain point, okay, you felt your feelings. It's time to have an escape and it's time to laugh and it's time to move on. And, and I have to say in some of the toughest parts of my the early parts of 2020 for me, um, just watching funny TV shows, listening to funny podcasts, reading funny books that I hadn't read in a, in a while, like completely saved me. That that kind of release of humor and silliness made me not think about this cosmic dread. And also the loss that you were 
personally experiencing, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, which which the loss that I was personally experiencing, which then caused kind of hand in hand this cosmic existential dread. And do you think that becoming a mother during that time, that's such an intense thing to go through anyway? Like I have a couple of friends who gave birth during quarantine and I tried to tell them like, that's what giving birth felt like even before COVID. I, I felt like a self-inflicted quarantine. Um, have you been able to connect with other people during this time? Like, do you have a pod? I do. I do. So I have a couple friends who gave birth right around the time I did. So my birth story is my birth story. And then there's like raising a newborn, which feels actually very separate and distant from the birth story because once she was out of the NICU, um, I have this like big, strong, tall, healthy, headstrong baby. Um, so again, they feel, they feel like very disparate and distant experiences, but I have a couple of friends who gave birth in this time and, uh, their daughters uh, have become like my daughter's, you know, baby friends. Um, (laughs) and then we go to a distance music class. And then I also have a lot of friends who are moms of older kids that I can talk to. So I do feel very, um, supported. I don't feel alone in the raising of the child. I definitely felt alone-ish, uh, in the beginning because it was such a specific situation of, giving birth during a pandemic, your child being in the NICU, losing a good friend. Like that was also specific to me. But now I, I do feel I'm part of this like communal experience. I was, I'm wondering, like some people are, are raised bilingual and I think of you as almost bilingual in musicals. <laughs> do you sort of like, <laughs> like I imagine you're going through the world and like you're having an interaction, but in your head you're translating it into a musical Um comedy act like does is that how it works for you <laughs> <laughs> um it used to be but you know at this point it's so writing focused and idea focused that i when i'm thinking of the world as a musical usually it is brainstorming for something i've worked working on it has become like a, a writing muscle and less escapist i don't see musicals as like a escapist in a fun way because songs just generally heighten where you're at. Um, so I, I think like, uh, I think a lot of people use musicals to escape, but it depends what the musical's about and it depends what the characters are about. The songs themselves aren't the escape. It's, you have to, because if you watch a musical like Next to Normal, which is about extreme mental illness and grief, that, that musical's not an escape. Right, right. And the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, it puts you, you yourself, into all these glamorous situations where you have to dress up and you have to look beautiful. But so many of the songs and the situations that you're that you're addressing in the songs are about the effort that goes into looking beautiful, and that just that sort of destroys the fantasy. And it's this push and pull between the effort women have to put into just being women. Um, in, so it's an, almost like an inherently feminist show, but it never quite says like we're a feminist show. And at the time it was made, I, I'm you know curious like how you think it fits into to where we are in talking about feminism now, as opposed to when it came out. And you know like it it feels very much of that moment to me, um, without ever explicitly saying that it doesn't it never comes out and and makes that grand announcement, but. 
have you thought about that in terms of like where we are in the conversation politically? Yeah, yeah. So, well, a couple things. So the character imagines herself in musical numbers because she doesn't have a sense of who she is on the inside or what she actually wants. So she's trying on different personas. And that was definitely my relationship to music and musicals for a long time. And I think a lot of us, you listen to music and you kind of almost picture yourself singing the song in the music video. At least that's that's how I do. Um, there's definitely like an exhibitionist quality of, of listening to music. And I would spend hours in front of the mirror, like, you know, lip syncing to, to songs from musicals. Um, and, and part of that is fun, but also part of that is trying on different personas. So from the beginning, it was always about a woman who was trying on different tropes and struggling to fit herself into these different tropes and expectations and failing. And it wasn't just her. It was, to a certain extent, all of the characters doing that. All of the characters had um, a kind of box that either they were in at first or that they'd put themselves in. And the show is really an exploration of them finding the gray areas in, in themselves and be like, no, I'm not just this thing. Yes, it's feminist, but it's also humanist. We always had empathy for every character on the show because that's what femi- feminism is humanism. It's, it's seeing the value and the worth of every individual. Um, and, and what, what does any individual need to be happy? Um, and women are, you know, 51% of the population of those individuals. Um, uh, there are definitely, you know, it's funny, there are, there are definitely jokes on the show that I think, uh, I don't know if we would like make now. Um, but that's just more the overall culture that doesn't really have to do with feminism. I, I don't know. I, I, I know I, I still really stand by the show. I think that, um, part of feminism is presenting female characters who aren't perfect. I think there's a little bit of this, um, as, as feminism has been turned more and more into keychains and t-shirts, uh, it's like, you go girl. Um, you know, if you can't love me at my best or you can't love me at my worst. And it's, it's, it's become this like feminism is equated with, um, being perfect. And, um, that takes away, I think the nuance of people. Yeah. I think one of the things that I loved about I love about your comedy in general is the way in which you'll do a sketch like let's bash all men and you'll make fun of the sort of instincts that trivialize all the discourse. Like it, you're sort of all, you're sort of pointing out like we're bad too. We do stupid things. <laughs> yeah. Let's generalize about men is not a feminist song. It, it's not an anti-feminist song. It's, it's a song about being primal. It's, it's really just a comment on when sometimes when women get together, you just want to generalize about men and it feels good. And it's not correct or accurate, but it feels so fucking good. Right. And, and look, I, I wrote that song with two guys. So I think in some ways that was a nice mitigating factor because I fell into that primal when we were brainstorming the song, like, let me tell you about men. And, and it, I think that title was Adam. I mean, that song was really, we, we did a brainstorming session and then Adam made Let's Generalize About Men a song. Um, I, I think it's a, a masterpiece. But like the kicker of that yeah. song, the like final line, which is like, 
oh, your sons are going to grow up to be rapists. It's really, yes. it's really a gut-punching critique on like so much of the feminist conversation that was happening at that time, which is like, you can't really generalize and you can't really do this because, you know, it's just against humanity to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there was always with a lot of songs, the, the, and, and it's hard to like explain it in mathematical terms or even like, well, here's, here's the formula we use. Cause it was always kind of like with our gut of, of commenting on the thing, but also doing the thing. We did a song called who's the new guy where we premiered this new character played by Scott Michael Foster named Nathaniel, who was this like very conventionally attractive, new, hot, asshole boss. And it's called Who's the New Guy, which is really a comment on what people think when a new character is introduced into a TV show. And there was a line, why should we root for someone male, straight, and white? Um, Because it was a comment on what people think when you introduce a new character in a TV show who's male, straight, and white, and the discourse around characters in television all the time. But also was kind of how we thought of Nathaniel. He was the definition of a completely privileged, rich, straight white guy. So we were always, um, and, I, and I still strive to do this, of, of trying to have the commentary cake and eat it too, in that like, no, I also do kind of believe this. Right. So you're like always walking that line between knowing what people are saying and, uh, sorry, are you on Twitter? Like, how do you stay abreast of those conversations and incorporate them, but not let them thwart your work? I'm on Twitter. I'm more of a lurker than a tweeter um, because I, I think like I believe in, in um, nuanced and specific discourse. And I don't think Twitter does that anymore, especially with like the trending topics, which have become more and more like just um, limiting into what we're actually talking about. And I think that Twitter has obviously done, I mean, Twitter is the leading cultural tool. Um, I just don't, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't like the black and white thinking that comes from it. It's not good for me. Um, it, so I, I don't tweet a ton and usually it's just to kind of promote stuff because if I have an opinion about something, I don't know, I feel myself engaging with the rage. The day after I gave birth, I found out that uh, NYU, my old school, wasn't giving students um, any sort of uh, a tuition back for the, for the year. And then the dean of Tisch posted this very insensitive and embarrassing video and and I was so enraged. You know, I had all these birth hormones. I, I, I took to Twitter a day after I gave birth to tweet about that. Now, was it partially an escape from the moment I was in? Yes. But, but also, did it feel good to engage with, like, the rage machine? Yes. And I don't, I don't like that part of myself. I don't like the, the tribalism in myself it engages. I read this book a couple years ago called So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. And it's all about public shaming. And this was before cancel culture. Um, and... I think, you know, what's interesting about all forms of public shaming is that it comes from a righteous place, but ultimately it's quite tribal. It's, it's our instinct as humans to be, I'm part of this tribe, you're not part of my tribe. And I just think at this point, I just don't feel like there's much I can personally contribute to, to Twitter uh, because everything I want to say takes up more than the 
hundred something characters. And when it doesn't, I'm engaging in a part of myself that I don't necessarily want to engage in. So the slight segue to the idea of tribalism, and I was thinking about the fact that you're a new mom and you talk a lot in your book and in your work about sort of the tribalism of junior high school life and, you know, (laughs) being in and out and and feeling like you can't quite figure out your way in. And I was thinking, I think about this a lot with my own kids, but like, do I want, or do you want rather, to have your child experience that kind of um, outsider status or any of the things that you went through that were so formative to you in your work? Like, would you choose to spare her that? Or would you, would you hope to, you know, have her experience anything like that? You know, like, Absolutely not. I don't want my child to be bullied in any way that I was. No, no, no. I don't even mean bullying necessarily, but just like that sense of um, your hardship that defines your sensibilities. Like how, like how do you expect that for her? What are your expectations around that for her or hopes? I'm going into this kind of with, with a no template. All I can do is, first of all, read some books about child rearing from people who've done this and listen to people who are raising children or currently raising children who I respect and try to instill in her, I think, empathy, but also self-protection. Because I think my empathy is, I have too much in that it'll sacrifice I'm a people pleaser, right? So I worry that I've insulted someone or I worry that I'm hurting someone or I'll, or I'll sacrifice my own, I don't know, comfort or something to make sure someone else feels comfortable. Um, so I don't want her to feel that, especially because women are often taught to put their own happiness second to other people's happiness. Um, so I, I want to teach her balance. That That's really my goal, Um is, is balance and moderation. And that's all I can really hope for. So I don't, I don't know. I don't have, um, I don't have a picture of her or a kind of ideal that I'm trying to really get to in my mind. Um, other than the people I know who I admire as parents and the kids I see who I, um, who are really, really good kids. And so I look, and when I think of good kids, I think of, um, I don't know. I think of kids who have a passion, who value um, kindness and intelligence and aren't worried about what other people think as far as like if they really want to pursue a passion hard. It's more of just striving to encourage these qualities in her. And I think another template I don't have is I, I didn't grow up with parents in show business at all. So I think it's more what I want to prevent is I don't want a kid who thinks that every, everyone is on TV and everyone's in show business. Um, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not rich like this, but like, I, I, you know, that everyone has a screening room or whatever. Um, I think mitigating that and balancing that. And then like, you know, a kid who becomes like an influencer at like 12 (laughs) and thinks that they're deserving of fame and acclaim for doing nothing. That that's actually, it's more of my fears of that culture. 
uh, and that type of kid. And, and this is also why I, I, I don't post as much on social media is like my fear that, that it will take over her life and become her meaning for living and, um, and turn her into a, I don't know, whatever that means, you know, a, a zombie, you know, a zombie or whatever. It's more preventing those things and trying to model that behavior. Right. Speaking of modeling behavior, um, I know that when you set up your writer's room, you had very specific goals for like how that was going to run. And they were, I think, rooted in empathy and compassion. Can you talk a little bit about like what you did to set that up and set those expectations for those people? And also like, how did it, how was it informed by your previous bad experiences in other places? Well, uh, from credit where credit's due, Aline Brush McKenna was the showrunner of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So what, what ended up happening was we were ordered to series very unexpectedly because we were a Showtime pilot that was passed on. We were being considered at the CW, and then we found out that CW didn't like any of their pilots that came in for the fall that year, and we were being considered for fall. And then a day after I heard that, we were ordered to series. So we were quite behind this is also in my in my book too. So it's easy for me to relay cuz I had to write about it. Um but basically a week after I found out we were going to series, I had to get on a plane to New York and go to what's called upfronts, which are when you uh networks and some cable networks also present their shows to the advertisers. And I had to start doing the like press for the show from the lead actress creator thing. Aline stayed behind in California to get our writer's room because we were behind. All of these other shows that were in contention for the fall, they'd already pre-interviewed a lot of writers. They'd already kind of pre-chosen directors and we were scrambling. So a lot of the choices for the writer's room uh, really rested on, on, on Elaine. And for her, she really prioritized the writing. And she and I both read, but she did a lot of reading of a lot of scripts. And found people just really based on who had the best samples. Um, so it starts with that. And then I think this show is immensely personal. So in a writer's room where you are going to share personal stories, um, you need a sense of, of empathy. Um, and as far as my previous writer's room experience, um, I mean, that, that show was very different than Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. But what I took from that is just doing my best to, to not activate other people's lizard brains. Can you, can you explain what you mean, like specifically for people who... Sure. So in the first writer's room I was in, um, and this, didn't, this wasn't the bosses, this was really my fellow writers, um, it was a competitive room. And if you had a bad pitch, the other writers would like shit on your bad pitch. And when I say the other writers, it was really like two people that everyone just kind of was like, you're the cool. And, and it was two people who had, uh, I think, probably also the funniest pitches. They were very funny people. Um, and I definitely learned a lot from them as far as joke writing. Um, so they would just kind of shit on pitches. And I was the only girl. I was the youngest. I was the greenest. I was really green. Uh, when I got this job, I was 23, and I felt very, like, made fun of and targeted in ways that I, I it was hard for me to articulate, because, like, no one was ever like, fuck off, woman, you're not funny. It was never like that. It was um, 
all of these uh, insulting kind of microaggressions that you you worry that you're just being too sensitive or that you're making it up. Um, and luckily I did, my boss at the time actually did admit we had a private meeting and he's like, this is a tough room. He's like, this guy's a bully. Like he, I had a, a boss who actually did a, agree with the makeup of the room. Um, but did so, that, did that person like help in any way or just, just the acknowledgement was what you got? Um, I don't know what they maybe said to the guys. Uh, I, for all I know, they could have had a conversation. No, I, there was no public discussion of like, guys, let's don't be assholes. You know, there wasn't that. Um, so I think what I, I think just trying to hire people who didn't seem like assholes. And that wasn't really a problem um, because we had a majority female writer's room. And I'm not saying women aren't assholes, but they're less likely to be assholes in the ways that I find men are. You see how I'm generalizing? <laughs> um, um, look, in comedy, there is a culture and it is set by the straight white male guys of competition and meanness. And so other people can absolutely be competitive and mean. Um, and I think that women, I, I think especially women who are of a slightly older gen generation, um, fall into that maybe a bit more because that's what you had to fucking do. It's like, yeah, to fit in with the guys, I had to be as fucking mean as they were. And they're absolutely right. That is what you had to do. So this kind of accepting feeling of a writer's room, a kind of no assholes policy, it's, I think it's relatively new in the comedy culture. I was going to say, is it changing? Do you see it changing broadly? Yeah, in that I just hear about more writer's rooms that sound like pretty pleasant experiences. And my husband's own experience on, on How I Met Your Mother, he wrote on How I Met Your Mother for, I think it was, was it four years or five years? Um, that was a very accepting writer's room. That was not super... The bosses on that show were very nice, and the, and, the, and the other writers were very nice to each other. Because right around the time I had my first job, I was also spending a lot of time on the set of How I Met Your Mother. Uh, just not a lot of time, but like I would go on there and hang out. And it was a big, spacious, um, multicam set. And so there was room for me to kind of sit in the back of Video Village. And and that, that set and that um, writer's room just felt very nice. And everyone was very nice. And I always had that in the back of my head, especially like on set, because set was more my domain than the writer's room, just trying to create that feeling of acceptance and everyone is welcome. What, what advice would you give people listening about how to deal with disappointment? I know that it seems like everything has been great. You have this big show, you have a book, you have a baby, but I know that that show was rejected. I think I've read eight times in one day. You know, how do you pick yourself up from those disappointments and keep going? I think surrounding yourself friend-wise with people whose opinions you respect. And I guess friend-wise and work-wise. Because we knew Crazy X was a good pilot. It was the frustration of like, why doesn't anyone else see this? And we knew it was, and the people I'd shown it to that I respected thought it was, and I don't think they were lying to me. 
So I think it's it's about building a community and a camaraderie so that you can steel yourself against rejection. But rejection's always going to hurt. I think I I think also the pressure of you're not supposed to feel sad uh, when you get rejected. You know, like oh, don't be don't be sad. Like you know in your head that it's that it's not you, it's them, and that a lot of decisions go into it. It's if you don't get a part, you shouldn't be upset. But I think that negates emotions, uh, and I think it makes it worse. So I think the acceptance of like, no, I am bummed and I am sad. And I realized that a lot of this is out of my control, but like allowing yourself to be sad in ways that you might think are like, quote unquote, shallow is an important part of that. Yeah, that's great advice. But I, I'm also wondering just like on a practical level, like I I heard you discussing um, on another podcast, the experience of getting notes back from, I guess, a network executive or something, and they took out a joke and you're like, you and the whomever you are working with, immediately turned the rejection of that or the removal of that joke into a joke, kind of purged it from your systems and were able to to keep going forward with the skit or the show. And that was so impressive to me when I heard you say it, because I was like, that is so cathartic. It's such a great kind of ah, acknowledging it, turning it into something to laugh at, moving on from it. Is there anything else or are you, were you even aware? Or like, were you? Even, that was my analysis of listening to you talk about it. But I, is that something you're like aware of? Look, I think that understanding that when you get notes from anyone, they're just trying to make the thing better. It's hard sometimes, a lot of times, because the people you get notes from aren't writers, and they have so many mandates from their own bosses of this is what we want for the network. Here's what the demo, you know, here's the demos we should be appealing to. That's their job. It's not their fault. So I I think I just, at the end of the day, like approaching, like people are just people. Everyone's trying to make the thing the best it can. And notes calls are weird. It, all of, a lot of this stuff is weird. Notes calls are weird. Weird auditions are weird. Callbacks are weird. The people who are, general meetings are weird. And the people who are, who you see as more powerful also think it's weird. So just kind of, I think, finding the balance of not being disrespectful, but but treating people like they're people. Right. But then you you have that funny, that great um, song about not being a lawyer. Just don't, just don't be a lawyer. <laughs> it seemed like I was listening to the, whatever you do, don't become a lawyer as a, as a, almost like a way, a cathartic way of dealing with all these lawyers that you have to deal with who are probably always oh, telling you like so funny. Um, no, the ending joke where it's like the C the CW and CBS do not condone anything in the song. That is maybe a little bit of a of a pushback and a rebellion against all of the legal things we had to follow. But no, that was really based on. Um, again, it it came a lot from Aline who went to Harvard. <laughs> Aline knows a lot of lawyers who quit and were miserable, and actually, so does my. Uh, a lot of my husband's friends, the same boat, uh, were lawyers. And I think of all of the people who went to law school, one of them is like still a lawyer. Um, being a lawyer is, is uh, you have to really love it. <laughs> um, and, and my father is a healthcare lawyer and uh, my father loves it. He loves being um, a lawyer or he loves the song? I mean, I knew your father a was a lawyer. And the, my father loves being a lawyer and he loves being the song. My dad loves healthcare law. 
My dad's also a bizarre person. <laughs> so that that was the other thing. The people who actually love the law um, are there's a there's an element of bizarreness in people who really love being lawyers. There's something wrong with them. Is that is that the yeah. message? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's something wrong with you, Dad. Um, your big hit, your your major viral, you know, fuck me, Ray Bradbury. You eventually met him. Would you? Tell the story of how did he had he seen the video? What was it like? He had, you know, at the time I made the video, he was about 90 years old. So a lot of his friends had seen the video and shown it to him. And this one specific guy who was in his orbit, this guy, um, John, reached out to me and said, Are you ever going to be in Los Angeles? I can arrange a meeting with Ray. So it really was his friends and that and that very nice community that he had around him, going back to having a community of people around you. He had amassed this very loving group of people. Um, and and there's a lot of overlap between the sci-fi um, slash fantasy community with the, the magic community, with the science community, with the skeptical community. And so it's a very, um, for the most part, very nice, supportive group of people uh, and that's how I met him. It was through his friends. But did he did he think it was funny? He did. He did definitely. I mean, he at the time, you know, he was quite aged, um, so he was he was hard of hearing, and and he his his vision, I think, was was going a bit. But he was sharp as ever, and he thought the video was funny, and we had a lovely hour long conversation, um, mostly in which I just asked him about his writing and his books and his writing process, and it was. It was surreal. Was that like a, a career highlight or anything you ever expected to have happen? Like, I didn't expect to meet him. Um, I think it was it was definitely a, a career highlight. It was also the first time I'd met. I'd been in the house of one of the only times I've been in like the house of a legend. So I think that there was also something to. I was just starting out in my career, which is obviously very different from Ray Bradbury's career. But I was just starting out in my career and then going to this house in, in, in Beverly Hills filled with awards and, and going into this room where he was kind of receiving people all day. He kind of had set up almost like a, a one-man salon where one by one people would come in and talk to him was, uh, oh, okay, so this is how you live your life once you're successful. But, but learning that he still um, wrote for, I think, two hours every morning. And had his daughter take dictation. Oh, wow. Do you think you'll be doing that at, at 90 with half of your hearing? Yeah, if I, can, if I can fucking figure out a better way to organize my emails. <laughs> every morning I think, oh, I'm going to get up and write. And it's like, oh, I got I to gotta answer all these emails. I have one last question, which is if you, you know, 20 years from now, your daughter's listening to this, what's just one thing you hope you would love her to know about this year, this first year together? Oh. Um, that even though we've been talking about my career a lot, um, I, I, that she's, she's the, the, the most important thing and, and I love her so much. And, um, I hope she knows that and, and, and feels how much I love her and how, and how much of a priority her, um, her happiness is to me. And that if 20 years from now she's listening to this and she doesn't feel like that, we should have a conversation. 
um, she should, she needs to come to me and we need to have a conversation. That's really nice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to cry. No, that's really, that's really nice. That's such a nice thing to say. Um, all right. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you. And, um, I know that the cut audience is a huge, huge audience for you and loves you and, um, can't wait for your next thing. And it's been our pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It was lovely to be here. In Her Shoes is edited and produced by Camila Salazar. Our lead producer is Jasmine Aguilera and Nishak Kerwa and Stella Bugby are our executive producers. The Cut is made possible by the executive team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples-Wagner and thank you for listening.